you're able, would you remain standing? And we're actually not going to read out of Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to read out of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and we're going to start at verse 38. This is the uh, portion of the Bible that's uh, commonly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a red letter version, you're going to see that uh, pretty much every, the whole page, both pages are in red, which uh, just tells us that uh, these are the words our Lord spoke. Doesn't mean them, doesn't make them any more powerful, but it just helps us in understanding what's going on here. We're going to start reading in verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5. This is the word of our Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us from this passage. We pray that you would enlighten us by your Spirit, that we might see glorious things concerning you in it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I, uh, I worked really hard on Ephesians 5, 6 through 14, in all the hours I had allotted to me this week to do that, uh, till late Friday afternoon, but it would just not yield. It would just not come out in the shape of a sermon. Uh, so I'll keep on working on that, and Lord willing, next Lord's Day we'll consider the passage that's actually in the bulletin. Meanwhile, for today, we'll consider Matthew 5, verses 38 through 48. It's a difficult passage, not in its complexity, but in its requirement, especially if you begin with the last verse that we read. Be perfect as God is perfect. So often people say that they don't really care for the Bible, they don't really care about this Jesus thing, but they really care for the Sermon on the Mount. These are words to live by. I just wanted to set my life and live my life in terms of the Sermon on the Mountain. How do you do that? Be perfect as God is perfect. 
You can only do that with the totality of the scriptures so that you can read elsewhere that those who come to faith in Jesus are declared to be perfect. Not on their own doing, but on the merits of Christ, who is the perfect one, who perfectly kept the law of God, who died the death we deserved, who rose again to life, that we might have life. And that the life that we now live is not our living, but Christ living in us because we've been crucified with Him. So how are you perfect as God is perfect? Not by your doing, but by your believing. It is uh, discouraging to see how human nature grabs hold of what God says. No, uh, James calls the Bible the royal law of liberty. God gave us the Bible, and James is referring to the Old Testament, and God gave us the Old Testament for our freedom. It seems to be counterintuitive that the very law of God was given for our liberty, for our freedom. And yet, humankind grabs these things that God gave us for good and twists them for their own doing. And the Sermon on the Mount, particularly chapter 5, is Jesus' correction of what the church had twisted concerning the Word of God. Jesus is not changing things. Jesus is not necessarily giving us new laws. He is telling us that the religious leaders of the day had twisted to their own benefit the things that God had given them. He read the refrain, you have heard it said. At least three times in the passage that we read, it says that, and you find that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, you've heard it said in the Sermon on the Mount, he's not referring to quotations from the Old Testament. That's not the formula he uses to quote the Old Testament in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, he's going to say, it is written. Or this was done that it might be fulfilled that it was written. When he says, you've heard it said, is that you've heard it said from your religious leaders. And Jesus says, but they were wrong. They were twisting the scriptures. And humankind does that because... There's no way we can do everything that God calls us to do. Now, that might sound weird that your pastor is telling you that you cannot, on your own, do everything that God calls you to do. But we want to be the captain of our ships. We want to be the ones that determine what we do. We want to be in charge of our future. We are Americans, after all. We pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we are not willing to have our lives, our destinies, our eternal, uh, uh, eternal life in the hands of somebody else. So humankind has a tendency then to come up with its own rules that are keepable, like the Pharisees did, so that we can say, see God, we have obeyed you. Look at the list. We've done all the things. Now you must accept me. The problem is that if that list is the word of God, you're not going to be able to claim that before God. The best way to know that you just can't obey God perfectly is by trying it. Try for a week. Well, let's be more reasonable. Try for two hours to do that. And you will see if you're really focusing on the word of God that you can't do that. The only way to obey God is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because he has obeyed God for us and now we, we stand in God's presence, presence in him and the spirit then equips us to do that and Jesus then corrects the thinking 
of the church here on the Sermon on the Mount, the church that was around at his time, and corrects the thinking of the religious leaders of the time by bringing people back to what the Bible actually says. He is being radical here. Uh, I don't know if you know exactly what the word radical means. Uh, we tend to use as somebody who's completely different, right? You're doing something completely different that's been done and so on. But literally, the word radical means at the root. And what Jesus is doing here in this passage is returning to the root of what it means to be a follower of God, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And at the root, a follower of Jesus Christ loves the people in their lives. A follower of Jesus Christ loves even those who are his or her enemies. And what Jesus then is calling us here in this passage is to a radical love that loves even those who have afflicted us. As I said, it's it's a difficult passage, but it's not a complicated passage. But it's one that if you're honest, you see that apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, there's no way that you can live by it. And as we begin here, I wanted to first say a couple things about the passage as a whole so that we don't misunderstand it. Uh, several people have misunderstood this passage. They read the idea that you're not, you know, you turn the other cheek, that uh, God calls us to be pacifists, both, both as individuals and as uh, a nation or a government, that we cannot have a military, that we cannot have a police force and so on. That's not the right way to interpret this passage. It's not what Jesus wants us to do here. Remember when uh, the soldiers came to John the Baptist because they had heard the proclamation, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And the soldiers came to John the Baptist and said, what should we do to show our repentance? And the only thing that John said was, fulfill your office as a soldier as God calls you. He didn't say, stop being a soldier, for you cannot be a Christian as a soldier. So you cannot read this and think, oh, God calls us all to be pacifists. Because to do that is to ignore the entire Old Testament, isn't it? Why, well, why were all those wars fought in the Old Testament? It wasn't under the direct direction. That's redundant. But it wasn't under the direction of God that Israel fought uh, those wars. So we have to allow for figures of speech. Jesus is using a very valid figure of speech called hyperbole. He use, he's, he's bringing things to extreme so we, he can make a point. But having said that, we have to be careful that we just don't throw everything away either. Jesus wants us to be in a place, have the attitude that if we need to, we will give the clothes off of our back. That we will turn the other cheek. That we will give everything we have to those that need, even if they are our enemies. That radical approach needs to be, that radical attitude needs to be our attitude because, again, we have been crucified with Christ. And the life that we now live is not our living, it is Christ living in us. We're dead. So it really doesn't matter how many times people hit us. Right? We're, we're dead to self. We don't live this life for ourselves anymore. So Jesus calls us to this radical living that recognizes that we are to love those that are around us. And I think uh, Jesus' teaching this passage falls into four categories. 
we may get through one. So we'll see how that goes there. And then maybe we'll do the other three at some later time. And the first thing that Jesus calls us here, or teaches us, is that radical love requires responding to wrongs with positive ministry toward the wrongdoer, not retaliation. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Now, some of you, if you're using the ESV or the NIV or the NASB, some of what I just read is not going to be in that verse for you. Do you notice that? But it is in Luke chapter 6. So even if it's not here in this verse, it is in Luke chapter 6. So this is the word of God, and we're going to consider as such. So the, the common teaching in the, in the church of the time is that you were supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That's what the teachers, the teachers see again, making change to the word of God so that uh, it's keepable. Well, I love my neighbor, but if I call him my enemy, then I don't have to love him anymore. So what do you think humankind does? Enemy, enemy, enemy. And anybody that I don't want to love now becomes my enemy. And I can stand there saying, see, I've obeyed God. And Jesus says, no, that's not what the Bible says. What the Bible teaches is that we're going to respond to wrongs with a positive ministry to those who have wronged us and without retaliation. Now, though sometimes Christians consider other Christians enemies, the Bible never talks about a Christian as our enemy. They are a brother. They are our sisters. Therefore, I think when he sees here in verse 44, love your enemies, he's talking about those that are unbelievers who are against us. It's interesting that Jesus assumes that you and I are going to have enemies, that the world is going to be in enmity against us. And he said that much already in the Beatitudes. Remember chapter 5, 10 through 12, where he says, Blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for, ye, for, ye, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, as a believer, you will be persecuted. You will have enemies. We like promises, right? They have promises, promised Bibles and whatever. But we don't like the promises that give us warm and fuzzy feelings. One of the promises that Paul makes to Timothy and to the church as a whole in 2 Timothy is that those who seek to live a godly life shall or will be persecuted. Faithful Christians will have enemies. The world will be in enmity with Christians. Now, we shouldn't uh, have enemies because of our obnoxious or insensitive behavior. We should not seek to be enemies with people. Uh, there's, no, there's no virtue in, have, in just being a jerk and then making enemies because you're a jerk. That's not what... Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about enemies that are there because you are faithful to the Lord. And that's kind of a general teaching of the scriptures. If we live righteously and hold firmly to God's truth, we will have enemies in this evil world. That's just a reality. If you're a faithful Christian, you're going to have enemies in this evil world. Why? 
because our lies will convict sinners who will try to bring us down so that they can justify their own sins. Now, we live in an age of tolerance. Isn't that what we're told? The age of tolerance. And yet, tolerance doesn't mean what tolerance means, does it? Because the very word tolerance means disagreements between people that are acknowledged. We know we disagree, and yet we're not going to kill each other. That's what tolerance is. But that's not the age we live in. We live, we live in an age where only one position is allowed. And you will be socially murdered, perhaps not literally, but socially murdered if you have a different position. The world hates Christianity because the world hates Christ. Isn't that what our Lord said? The world will hate you because it hated me. How do we respond to all of that? We'll respond to all mistreatment by actively loving those who wrong us and never by retaliating. That's what this passage says. Not, it's plain, it's not difficult to see, but it's so hard to do it. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. Again, verse 44, But I say to you, love your enemies. And this love is not primarily a feeling, but an action that stems from an attitude. The attitude of love thinks about the other person as a fellow sinner who needs to know the forgiveness of their sins that Jesus provides. How often do we think of our enemies as that? that? How often do we look at them with pity? with true, genuine compassion, and say, I, you, you need Christ. Let me give you Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. Isn't that the, the, what our, Jesus, our Lord Jesus did? It says in the book of Mark that he looked and saw this crowd that was just all walking around like sheep without a shepherd, no de- the kind of lost in their own, nobody really guiding them, was the blindly in the blind. And Mark tells us that he looked at them with great compassion. And the word there, compassion, is you could very well translate it as his stomach was tied into a knot when he looked at the unbelieving. Several of them who had opposed him to his face, several of them who were going to eventually yell, crucify him, crucify him. And yet he looked at them and said, and that's compassion. And that's when he says, the fields are white unto harvest. Pray that the Lord of harvest will send workers to reap the field. Remember one of the seven sayings that our Savior uttered from the cross? As the Roman soldiers are there, as the Jewish leaders are there, as the people who yelled, crucify him, crucify him, the day before are there, he prays to his Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And did the Father, own, did the father honor that, that prayer? Just a few weeks later, that same, those same people, some of those same people were there at Pentecost, when thousands of them were saved and forgiven by the Father for crucifying Jesus. We have experienced the mercy of God. It's our turn now to extend that mercy, that love, to those who are opposed to us, who are our enemies. And notice that Jesus adds, do good to those who hate you. 
So it's not just enough to refrain from getting even. It's just not enough to just bite your tongue and not talk back to them. It's not just enough not to punch them in the face. It's not sufficient just to separate yourself from the, the one who has wronged you. Jesus says that we must actively do good to the wrongdoer. And you say, how can Jesus require that from me? That's not fair. And yet, what, what do you think he did for you? Do you think you were the most lovely person in the world? Do you think that Jesus looked down and said, I need that person. I can't live without that person. That's why I'm going to save them. God's love was commended towards us, was demonstrated towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ willingly died for us when we were shaking our fists at God, saying, you are not my God. And Christ died for us. We've experienced, if you're a believer, we've experienced that love. And that's all that Christ is saying. Hey, just love others with the same love that I have loved you. And he gives us specific examples here. He says, bless those who curse you. If a, if a person verbally attacks you, respond with kind words. And that's difficult. I, I, sometimes a blessing, sometimes a curse. I have a very quick mind. Responses come to me just like that. And some of you have experienced that from me. And for that, I'm very sorry. And Jesus says, No. Do not pay back the same way. He says, if somebody attacks you, bless them. If somebody attacks you with your words, bless them. If somebody curses you, bless them. And it's not the type of blessing that says, may your life be short. That's not the blessing that he wants us to, to no, bless good things. If, you call, if he calls your names or cusses you out, don't respond by telling him off, even if you avoid using swear words. Respond graciously. Remember what Proverbs 15.1 says? A soft answer will turn away wrath. My wife is master of that, of, of the soft answer. I'm the master of the wrath. And she often will disarm me by her gracious response to my sinful attacks on her. He gives us further direction. He says, pray for those who despitefully use you. Not just bless them, but pray for them. Earnestly pray for them. And he doesn't mean here, pray in precatory psalms, may your children be dashed against the rocks. That's not what he says here. Pray for blessings of God upon them. Pray for, sincerely for their well-being, which may include their conversion to Christ. Now, we can rest assured that if we, the person does not repent, God will bring His righteous judgment upon him in due time. We don't have to be the judge. We don't have to be the punisher. We don't, we don't have to be the ones who execute the verdict. God will do that. He will vindicate His people if His people need to be vindicated. So rather than feeling sorry for ourselves because we have been mistreated, we feel compassion for this sinner who is headed for hell if God does not intervene. Remember that the sinner is acting towards you the only way he or she can. 
They're not a believer. They, they cannot act in any other way. But you, you and I have been empowered by the Spirit. And sin no longer has dominion over us. Pray that God would be merciful in saving the person for His glory. And then Jesus also gave us the well-known turn the other cheek teaching. And this, is often, uh, this often has been wrongly interpreted to mean that a Christian should never defend himself against aggression. Uh, every time I read that, the only picture that comes to mind is uh, two pictures come to mind from two movies. One is Rocky Balboa. Remember what his, his style was? Was to first take a beating from the other guy before hitting back? That's kind of like uh, this idea that, well, just let them beat you up and eventually they will get to, get to, uh, they, they will get so tired that you overcome them. That's, I won't mention the other one, but that's not what the Lord Jesus is saying here. Jesus was not talking about not using governmental force, the military, and so on, as we've seen. Even Romans 13 tells us that the state holds the sword in order to inflict punishment. Neither does Jesus mean that we should never confront those who are in sin. Because he did that. He drove the money changers out of the temple. He strongly confronted the Pharisees later on in chapter 23 of the same gospel. He rebuked his disciples when they were wrong. even said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. So biblical love does not mean being a, a doormat. Turning the other cheek does not mean that a godly wife should silently endure physical abuse from an evil husband. She can and must confront his sin in a proper spirit. And if it continues, call the authorities that God has ordained for her protection. There's, you as a husband, if you think that your office gives you permission to be abusive to your family and to your wife, you do not know Christ. Because that's not the case. As a matter of fact, if that's what you think, you're just a coward. Because that's not what Christ does to His church. His church, He never beats or abuses His church. Women in the church, if you're being abused by your husband, call the police. That's your first phone call. Call the police, have him arrested. And second, call your elders. In that order. So that righteousness may rule in your home. If someone is threatening your life, you're actually attempting to kill you, the scriptures call us to defend ourselves and call the police. And the same is true if we witness someone being attacked. So this idea of turning out the cheek doesn't mean just don't do anything. Do you notice how Jesus says, if somebody strikes you on your right cheek? Most people are right-handed, Right? In order to strike somebody on the right cheek, what do you have to do? You have to be a backhanded strike, which for centuries is, is considered as an insult. So more than actually being beat up by somebody, he was talking about somebody insulting you in that manner. And so Jesus tells us, that if that happens to you, don't reciprocate, don't hit back, hold your cool, don't have the spirit that's quick to prove no one is going to mess with me and get away with it. The spirit, this, that, that spirit stems from selfishness and pride. We're commended to radical love that does not retaliate. 
So when Jesus commands us to offer the other cheek, he is not speaking literally. Did you get that? He's not saying in every occasion, go ahead, let somebody hit you at least twice. Because I've had people tell me that. That you can only hit back if you're hit twice. One on each cheek. Once you get hit on each cheek, then you're free to hit back. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He wants us to not be reactive, impulsive in doing that. And that's true how it's true about the cloak as well. We have no record of Jesus walking naked in the Bible. And yet here it says, give your tunic and your cloak, which is the only thing left was underwear. So he's not saying literally, but be ready to provide for people who needs your help, even if they are your enemies. I told you the first one was the longest one. And, but Jesus called us with his radical love that loves those, those who, who attack us, those who are our enemies. And we'll finish with this second one. Jesus calls us to a radical love that requires treating others as God treats us. Look at verse 45. That you may be sons of, God, uh, sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And then verse 48, Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Radical law requires treating others as God treats us. As God treats us. Not as how we treat others, but how God treats us. How does He treat us? He sends rain to the just and to the unjust. And here rain's a good thing. Crops, food comes from rain. And he says, God is merciful to the just and to the unjust. And we are the sons and daughters of that God. Doing these things doesn't make us sons and daughters, but demonstrates that we're sons and, God and daughters of the God who acts lovingly or mercifully, at least, benevolently to those who are unjust. Those that are shaking their fists at God at the same time they are eating the produce that the rain that God sent brought to their table. Quickly, the third thing that Christ calls us here, he calls us to radical love that exceeds the world's standard. In verses 46 and 47, it says, hey, you love those who love you? The tax collectors do that. The tax collectors are the ultimate sins of Jesus' time. Sinners. So they do that. What, what great thing are you? You are indwelt by the Spirit, but you can't exceed the love of a sinner? That's not what he calls us. He calls us for a love that exceeds the world's standard. We don't look around to look for how we're supposed to love. We look to Christ to know how we're supposed to love. And lastly, radical love shows the nature of God to people who desperately need Him. We display our status as sons and daughters of God when we are loving those who despise us. And that will bring people to know Jesus, give us the opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Why is that true? Why do we do these things? Because that's exactly what God did for us. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So let me challenge you with one challenge as, you, as we finish this morning. This week, think of someone who has wronged you. Pray for an opportunity to do something kind for him or for her. Pray for an opportunity to demonstrate love to them. 
Let's let God's radical love that found you as a sinner flow through you to those who have, been, have mistreated you because of the love your Father in heaven has for you. Find a concrete way to demonstrate that. Be Christ to them this week and see what God will do through you as He works in you through the power of His Spirit to reach out to those who are hurting without Christ. Let us pray together. Thank you, Father, that uh, you speak to us in your word. We pray that you'd give us the grace to be obedient to you. We thank you that you've given us the spirit that empower us to obey you. Help us to rely on him. Help us to die to ourselves as we follow you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.